this is Dr. Lynn McPherson, and welcome to Palliative Care Chat, the podcast series brought to you by the online Master of Science, PhD, and Graduate Certificate Program in Palliative Care at the University of Maryland. I am delighted to welcome you to our podcast series titled Founders, Leaders, and Futurists in Palliative Care, a series I have recorded with Connie Dolan to support coursework in the PhD in Palliative Care offered by the University of Maryland, Baltimore. Welcome everyone to our podcast series, What Comes Next? The Future of Palliative Care. Today, we are going to talk with an expert in the field, Kathleen Kerr. Kathleen is a healthcare consultant in private practice in Northern California. His, her work is focused on scaling sustainable models of community-based palliative care with a particular emphasis on payer provider partnerships and supporting programs that operate in underserved and rural areas. Ms. Kerr has worked in several statewide initiatives sponsored by the California Healthcare Foundation, including multiple efforts aimed at facilitating implementation of their California state law that mandates access to palliative care for the seriously ill Medicaid beneficiaries. She's a longtime member of the selection committee of the American Hospital Association Circle of Life Award, which recognizes excellence and innovation in the delivery of hospice and palliative care across the continuum. And she serves on the National Hospice and Palliative Care Organization Palliative Care Council. So welcome, Kathleen. Indeed, welcome. So hi, thanks would, for having me. Would love you to introduce yourself and talk about what is the most entertaining thing about you that we don't know from your introduction. <laughs> uh, well, uh, as you said, Kathleen Kerr, healthcare consultant. Um, I'd like to think that most people don't know most things about me, uh, entertaining or otherwise, but uh, something that uh, stands out uh, for a couple years, up until um, just about 2021, our little 1,690 square foot house was multi-generational. And we had uh, our, our census maxed at 13 mammals, um, seven humans and six other mammals. And at that point, uh, my wife and I put down a moratorium and nothing else with a heartbeat was allowed to move in until something else moved out. Uh, and we, we've since uh, settled into a much more uh, manageable census of, uh, of six mammals. There you go. Wow. Okay. Well, that's, you know, palliative care its best, thinking about the population and thinking about serious illness and all of that care. <laughs> we had a population, definitely. <laughs> so tell us a little bit more about what you do in palliative care and what do you love about it? Yeah, I do. I do lots of things. Uh, when I saw this was coming up, and I, I saw that was a question, I actually looked, and I have um, ten clients and fifteen projects right now. So I do a lot of uh, a lot of different things. I do um, technical assistance, so sort of just offering frank advice and providing support for programs. Um, I do education, do some teaching work. Um, I do sort of typical consulting work where I offer advice on strategy or program de design or how would I evaluate something. I work on actual evaluations. So um, Foundation X has invested X amount of dollars over Y number of years into palliative care and they wanna know, well, what was the impact of all that? And I can uh, go and help them figure that out. 
I do analytics, so looking at um, data sets to try to gain some insights from that work. And I help uh, with um, tool development, tool design. I uh, do some of that work with some close colleagues I worked with for a long time, trying to develop tools, uh, often spreadsheet or narrative or database uh, based that help people put in information and scenario, do some scenario modeling or understand what is happening or what is needed to um, increase the probability that they'll be able to offer quality, sustainable palliative care to a particular population. And I think you've said several things that are so important at this time of, of thinking about like equity and sustainability, right? Because I think when you, with your focus on metrics, um, you know, we've moved beyond the heart of only doing it because we want to do it, but making sure that it's compatible with reimbursement and quality that makes it sustainable. Yeah, absolutely. You know, when I think of, of quality, um, I think it's really useful for, for people to go back to kind of the basics, to the heart of what that means. And I like the, the WHO definition where you think of quality as being um, efficacy. So does it work? Does it do what you intend it to do? Efficiency, efficient. So is it um, helping to steward resources or prevent waste of resources? Um, safety. So is it safe and is it not introducing uh, new risks or harms? Um, Timeliness. So, are you able to deliver it at the time when people when people need it? Um, equity. So, is it available to all? Is there justice there? Uh, is it or is it only available to a few? And then, really, what that heart of palliative care is is patient centered. Uh, and so, I think it's still part of quality, and it's still something that can be measured. But it's measured as part of a portfolio of domains that point to quality healthcare. So, I find it so interesting, if I could just ask one question, Connie. I think hospice was in for such a shock when they realized that it's not all kumbaya, that this really is a business. So for you to talk about, you know, strategy and, you know, quality and metrics and measures, I think that was kind of a hard learned lesson. Do you agree? Yeah, and I think that's maybe the pendulum has swung a little bit in some facets of the field of hospice, and there's some lessons there that palliative care can learn from. I think that hospice had that rich history of being anchored in volunteerism and compassion and caring for the dying and involving the community and, you know, what Connie called the, the heart uh, of, of end-of-life care. I think that uh, with the uh, introduction of the demonstration project and the benefit, which didn't happen till you know, many years after hospice was first established in the United States. I think it was still dominated by folks who were very interested in that part of it. I think that to survive, even nonprofit entities had to learn to operate within the confines of the available revenue. But I think as the model has been scaled and it's available now in most communities, uh, and as some of those entities have developed other lines of business, or perhaps have been um, um, uh, consolidated into organizations that are have a for-profit tax status, um, mm -hmm. that at times it's been too much of a business. Mm -hmm. And so I think there was a shock and a correction, and then maybe a little bit of an overcorrection in some places, and it's, it's um, perhaps a moving target but it's also possible to err on either side. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, you can try to offer too much of everything that very vulnerable folks and families that are in very difficult situations need to sort of blow up the scope and elevate patient-centeredness, but then you're gonna lose sight of all those other issues related to quality, such as efficiency and efficacy and timeliness and all of those things, which you can't maintain for a population uh, unless you have an enormous staff and unlimited resources. So it's it's really a balancing act. I know when I, talk to uh, one of my favorite things in recent years has been involved in projects where there's both providers and payers in the same project, often in the same room, working on the same problems to try to figure out what you need to develop care models and contracts with expectations around uh, revenues and reporting and also hitting benchmarks and metrics. Um, You know, how how do you approach those things uh, in a way that's going to work for everybody? And, And I typically talk about how it's a, it's a balancing act where you have to have a level, it has to be level where the scope of service and the cost of delivering care and the amount of payment that you receive to do that care is aligned with the outcomes that justify the fiscal output on the part of the payer, the health plan or the ACO or whomever. And if any one of those three bits gets out of line, your service is not gonna be sustainable or it's not gonna be effective. And so you, you need to, if you keep the balance in mind, you don't have to do away with the heart or do away with the business. They just have to be uh, all sitting there together in a way where they're, everybody's getting enough uh, of what they need. I love that. Does that answer your question? Absolutely. Absolutely. That was great. Sure. I mean, when you think though about this quality and metrics, I mean, you spoke a little bit to it, I think of the being out of balance, but when you think about where we are and where we're going. What are your biggest concerns or what do you think the biggest challenge is? Yeah, there's so many challenges. Um, My biggest global concern is an absence of standardization and regulation, which means a ton of variation. Uh, And that is, the variation exists ac- across multiple uh, m- multiple domains. There's variation in eligibility criteria for palliative care, who it's being delivered to. There's variation in the care model, so who is doing the care delivery and which combination of people, or even if it's a, if it's a single person. And there's also variation in um, scope, what they're intending to do for that population. And then there's variation in quality that comes from the team that's assembled and the amount of time they have and the money they're being paid that dictates the time can be an absence of training. So all of that variation makes it, um, it's a very dangerous mix in particular because many people, uh, including all non-palliative care providers, just about uh, most patients and families and many payers, including health plans, they don't really know what palliative care is. Um, they could not define it, or if they defined it, it would be a little bit unfortunate in the way that they do. It's hard for it. Most folks don't know. And when you, when you combine lack of familiarity with tremendous variation, and the variation leads to variation in quality, it sets things up where the first experience that a referring provider or a patient and family or a health plan has, those early experiences, cement in their mind what palliative care is and what the expected impact is. 
And it could be a great experience, but it could also be a really bad and unsatisfying experience. And I would include in that also an experience that appeared to have no appreciable benefit, didn't provide enough service to actually change a symptom profile, or didn't provide the right service to change the way that a patient would use healthcare resources, so no impact on costs. And so that, at, even though palliative, palliative care has been around a while, <clears throat> we're at such an important point in time in terms of trying to scale that this variation and the confusion it causes for referring providers and patients and families and payers, and also the variation in experience they have with the service can really slow scale. Because you can have a health plan that says, oh, we tried that, it didn't work. It is going to be a long time before they try it again. It's the exact same thing that we saw when folks are trying to scale inpatient palliative care services. If they had a bad experience early on, it would take years for them to try again. And so that really, really worries me, the absence of standardization. Absence of standardization also creates an opportunity where profit motive, whether it's done by a nonprofit entity or for-profit entity can be um, inappropriately elevated. And if all you're looking to do is spend the least amount of money possible to check the box and hope that you're gonna control costs, um, you can wind up offering really um, uh, non-optimal care. And uh, I think there's some lessons in other healthcare sectors there, and I'm hoping that palliative care can learn from them. And I, I do think one way to reduce the variation, assure a minimum level of quality, and then you can talk about the metrics that are right to look at. Um, a lot of that can flow from standards. I mean, in hospice, there's conditions of participation and there's minimum requirements. And you know there's at least a certain amount that you're supposed to get. And if you don't get that, then the money can be clawed back and there's penalties to pay. There's no such situation like that in palliative care right now. So you are free to call just about anything palliative care and there's nobody who can tell you to do otherwise. And I think that is a big risk to quality and it's a huge impediment to measuring quality. Connie, can I build on that? Sure. It, it seems to me listening to you speak that this lack of standardization also could be contributing to what I perceive as a lot of room to grow in our continuum of care from community-based palliative care to inpatient palliative care to home-based, long-term care-based, and hospice finally. This seems like we're the only country in the world that has parsed it out in this fashion. Do you agree with that? Or how can we fix that, do you think? Yeah, I do agree with that. I think there's a lot of um, smart and really well-meaning people that are trying to shoehorn the services that we know benefit seriously ill individuals and their families into the very oddly structured boxes, which are the things that our health care system currently pays for. And I think there's a lot of potential for that to um, be corrected uh, through health plans, MA plans, Medi Medicaid managed care plans, commercial plans to re-envision services outside of the narrow confines of what we think of as particular clinical services or benefits and think more longitudinally about what is it that we know this person and their family when they reach a certain stage of heart failure or a certain type of cancer a certain level of, um, uh, of um, uh, compromise because of COPD or dementia, we know what helps. And how can you define a benefit that allows for titration of the right amount of care in whatever setting they happen to be in? And that is, I think there is a struggle with too hot and too cold. 
there can be folks who are enrolled in hospice for two years because that's the only service that provides an interdisciplinary home-based support when they could be served maybe even better with a different construct of services offered through a home-based palliative care team. And so you're spending more money on not the exact right intervention. Um, so it can, it can be too hot or too cold, not enough care or too much care. So I think getting over this concept of clinical services as they're defined in payment benefits and helping those that are responsible for the, the financiers and purchasers of healthcare to realize that there's a better way and to allow for payment models that are aligned with that better way, that's the promise of the future. And you could say that VBIB is getting there a little bit or um, there's more MA plans that are interested in home-based medical services. There's certainly entities that have been offering a continuum of services, which they may or may not be um, entirely sustainable. Given the payment models, I think Connie and I have seen some of those through the Circle of Life Award committee meetings. There's folks that are doing it. It just, it's that alignment that we talked about. You have to have the payment mechanism and the payment amount and the cost of care delivery all lined up. Uh, and it's not impossible to do. A lot of it has to do with what we're accustomed to, as opposed, there's no, there's no you know, um, law of physics that prevents us from creating a payment uh, mechanism that offers that sort of continuum of care, that flexible continuum of care that, that we can envision. That would be lovely. Kathleen, so here's a question for you though that I'm curious about. So as you know, I'm pre-invested in the NCP guidelines since I edited several editions, um, was there from the beginning. And that the whole goal of that was to try to have the standardization of palliative care without sort of the, um, blocking in that the hospice conditions of participation did, you know, very good benefit, but a lot of people would feel like, in fact, that sort of closed things in and th that was to sort of have standardization. Do you see any ability for us to be using those in a more systematic way for quality um, and in a metrics form that you, you know, that's your expertise? Yeah, I am a huge fan of the NCP guidelines, in particular the last version, which, which talked about delivery of palliative care in different settings and uh, primary palliative care versus, versus specialty. I think it's an amazing document that has a lot of terrific guidance. Um, I think it's, I mean this from a position of tremendous respect, it's too long and too guideline-y to serve as the basis for standards that you can't hand the NCP guidelines to awesomehospice.com uh, you know, and say, okay, you're gonna be offering palliative care now, read this and do what's in there. That's just an unworkable structure. If you're trying to, to um, educate a local health plan about palliative care and what it could do for their members, you can't say, and here's this amazing 90 page document I need you to read through. And when you're done with that, we can get together and talk about the specifics of the contract. You know, there are certain parameters that need to be built into a benefit that are more concrete mm -hmm. and also a little more um, practical than what's in the NCP guidelines. So I think anybody who's delivering palliative care should, be, should read the NCP guidelines. I think if you're offering a health plan benefit in palliative care, it would be awesome if the medical director read the NCP guidelines. But if you're sitting down with the folks who do contracting or network uh, development or are looking over time to see, is this organization delivering the type of care that we, that we want our members to have? 
um, the NCP guidelines are just too uh, exhaustive to fill that role. So what would you suggest instead? Mm. I think you can get at minimum standards. So you're not, uh, so, so uh, it's certainly the experiment that was run in California with the Medicaid managed care mandate. They set out minimum standards. You at least have to offer palliative care to these people, to these types of, of members. You at least have to offer this set of services. You at least have to engage with these types of providers to deliver it. And it was an absolute floor. And the same thing uh, can be said of the California Advanced Illness Collaborative Standards for Community-Based Palliative Care, which were developed almost at the same time that the SB 1004, the Medicaid Palliative Care Benefit came out in California. So there's a set of standards that were developed by the Coalition for Compassionate Care of California in partnership co-sponsored by Blue Shield of California. And there was a group of palliative of health plan representatives and palliative care provider representatives and a little bit of policy work in there as well. These poor people who met in a, in a conference room in, in Sacramento for a couple hours uh, uh, early in the morning over the course of a couple of years to try to iron out what are the minimum standards that we think should be there. And it's really, really hard to do to reach agreement across those different stakeholders, but they came up with a set of minimum standards and it's exactly the same as the SB 1004 standards, but they're close to the Medicaid palliative care standards. And it's like, look, you can do a ton more than this, but at least do that. And I think that if you at least set those minimums, you get rid of, rid of some of the worst types of variation. So having, you know, just a checkbox on a home health nurse's orders that says, well, you're going to be doing palliative care with this person you're about to visit. And that the nurse may have no training, no other tools, no other team to work with, but then that gets called palliative care. Or maybe you have a physician consultation service where that one individual is offering palliative care, but they don't have the nurse and the social worker and the chaplain and the community health worker or anybody else to help with the things that they didn't do such a hot job of teaching in medical school. And that could be called palliative care. But neither of those models would fit the minimum requirements as put forward in SB 1004 or the, or the, the CAIC standards. So I think you can get rid of some variation and help have something that's practical but not limiting if you set minimum standards. I think it also encourages people to, in the absence of a mandate, which is hard to get, having minimum standards encourages folks to dip a toe in like, oh, we're only going to do the minimum that's required in these standards. And they had to do that in California with Medicaid because it was a mandate. And some plans were all over it and had pilots running for years before the, the benefit took effect. Others, you, you could like see the skid marks on the floor. They came kicking and screaming into delivering palliative care to their members. Uh, and they just had to do the bare minimum. And that was fine. Just do the bare minimum. And then they could sit back and watch and see those that had more robust programs and where they had put more effort into it, um, better enrollment, better impact for their, for their members, and really just a better experience in, in interfacing with the palliative care providers in their community and the, the other members of their clinical care network that referred to palliative care. So if you just create a very doable minimum, I think that gives people something to build off of. And it still allows for differentiation for those that are doing it super well in, in it, uh, to be recognized for that, and then perhaps take up more of the of the market. So, when you think about 
quality moving forward? What do you think we need to focus on? Um, well, I think correcting the absence of standards and regulations is probably one of the most important things. And I think the, the, the step that's available now is encouraging organizations to be accredited or certified and encouraging individuals to get certification, whether that's board certification for a physician, but I think the much more doable um, mid-career certification that's available to all levels of nurses and social workers and chaplains. I think there's ways for community health workers to get education in palliative care, plan case managers. So I think that training at the individuals on the individual level and certification and, and accreditation on the um, accreditation on the uh, provider organization level will do a lot to help. It's assuring some minimum sets of structures and processes which uh, if you talk to some folks is really the way to go given the changing nature of what's preferred and possible amongst the seriously ill. So you can have situations where symptom scores may not be the best measure of what that person wanted or care concordance is really hard to measure uh, if, unless you measure it serially because people's preferences change over time. But what you can measure is do you have an organization that has people that are appropriately trained in palliative care? Are you doing a comprehensive assessment for everybody within a certain period of time? Are you documenting that you have a goals of care conversation within a certain period of time and that it's repeated? Are you, um, are you available 24 seven in some meaningful fashion so that you can help with um, crises? Are you asking the people that you serve, do you know who to call if there's a crisis? Was I treated with respect? Would I recommend this to family or friends? You can measure those things, even if you don't know the perfect benchmark to aim for in terms of pain score modification or proportion referred to hospice or whether, you know, what's the right number of folks to get to have an advanced directive. So many things about the population we serve make universal measures of outcomes difficult, but universal measures of process much more doable and probably almost more meaningful. Well, for obvious reasons, I'm very pleased to hear you talk about uh, training opportunities. I hear the University of Maryland's got a pretty cool program and a master's degree and a PhD <laughs> in palliative care, right, Connie? Yes. Even if yes. we could just get a learning unit on primary palliative care skills in every professional school, that would be huge, don't you think? Yeah, yeah. yeah I do. There's this amazing um, uh, project, uh, which will be coming to a close in September, that the California Healthcare Foundation sponsored includes uh, nine of the county safety net hospitals in California, and it includes the leads of their palliative care service, and then a partner service line. So trauma surgery, or the heart failure clinic, or radiation oncology, or the oncology clinic, or primary care practices. And the entire goal of the project was to introduce an improvement in primary palliative care in the partner service line. And they were able to select a target population. So who do you want to be doing this? And what's the specific behavior? So very, very focused. We want people to document uh, um, goals of care discussions. We want people to measure pain with a PEG score. We want people to develop a meaningful plan of pain for the folks seen in radiation oncology. And these projects are incredibly successful. 
um, done, done really wise things with leveraging the capabilities within the EHR to identify populations and offer prompts to remind people to do the behavior and then also easy ways for them to document that they did it so that they can monitor their impact over time. They're very low cost. They're very high yield. They're very satisfying for these folks. I can't tell you how many people I've heard everywhere from nephrologists to the nurse practitioner in the heart failure clinic through this uh, project say, we knew that our patients needed this, but we didn't know how to do it. Wow. So it's just a matter of connecting with the palliative care provider, giving them vital talk training or some CAPSI courses or whatever it was that was appropriate to their goal. These people experience um, distress, even if it's a little bit buried, of knowing they should do it, but not knowing how. And then once they know how, they become amazing ambassadors for the learning with all of their peers. So we're in the process of sort of uh, seeing the end of these projects, but then doing write-ups of them that are detailed enough so that you could almost do like a toolkit sort of thing. Just, well, I already did heart failure clinic here. Let's try with that nephrology one, or we have a trauma surgery team that's interested. Let's do that. And so the hope is by scaling that way, you can um, create very feasible, integrated into the work plan, uh, appropriate for the amount of time that these folks have to spend on palliative care, uh, helping them to help their patients uh, in a way that on a scale that you could never achieve with a specialty service. So the thing that blew me away with this project is the scale. I mean, once you get into primary care and we're going to do this for everybody over the age of 60, it's like, wow, how big of a palliative care team would you need to take care of all those people or all those people who come into the ED? So it's, I agree with you, primary palliative care is super important and super simple measures there. Like, uh, documentation of a goals of care discussion or documentation of a surrogate. Just get the process going and get it on the radar screen of the department, acknowledge it as something that's important and that's plenty. You know, you don't need six part uh, evaluation plans that take a, you know, a 0.5 FTE of analyst, use your EHR, be smart about it. Pick the thing that tells you was the behavior done and a little bit about did it achieve the effect that you needed, and you got two measures, and away you go. Wonderful. Right. Well, last question, Kathleen, is you are very excited in, uh, about what you do. It's clearly you're passionate, and you have, I mean, who would have thought that 50 years ago we'd be talking about quality metrics and whatever? So if you think about people going into the field, one, or people who are thinking about going into quality, what advice would you give them at this point? Yeah, I think um, so many things. <laughs> one, one, one sort of rule of thumb that I hope that your, um, your program enrollees would take to heart um, is I think it was back in 1999 uh, that Don Berwick published an essay called Escape Fire. And there was a, a great movie, a documentary made of it, but the essay itself, which you can grab off the Commonwealth Fund website, there's a very interesting discourse about his family's experiences and what's wrong with the healthcare system and what does it take for um, new innovations to take hold. And uh, my colleague, Brian Castle and I were very, very taken with this. We actually used it in an introduction to a, a paper we wrote for um, JPSM on uh, the business case for palliative care. And in Escape Fire, Don Berwick identified sort of four domains slash groups that all have to be on board 
if you want some new intervention, uh, intervention or innovation to take place. So that new thing needs to make sense from the perspective of science, of evidence and professionalism. It has to be something that actually works and that there's proof that it does good. It has to make sense from the perspective of patients and families that are getting the care. So they have to understand what this will do for them and why they should accept it. It has to make sense from the business and finance perspective of healthcare. So it has to be sustainable. It has to make business sense. And finally, it has to make sense to what Berwick calls um, the good kind people that do the caring work. So providers, whether they're palliative care providers or the oncologists and nephrologists and others who we want to refer their patients to palliative care. And I've seen that dynamic play out in the palliative care programs that have been um, started and failed or started and thrived in the real world, that it does need to work across all four of those domains. And the thing that I would offer as a good touchstone for people who are getting into this field is to remember those four areas and to respect all four of them. And I think it's very natural for the providers the nurses and physicians and pharmacists and social workers that are doing this work, of course, we are going to approach patients and families with humility and respect and curiosity to find out what's important to them and to try to craft, try to guide, make our actions be guided by what's important to them to account for their preferences. And I would suggest that as a field, we would do a whole lot better if that same respect and curiosity and humility was extended to all four of those areas that need to be on board if we're going to scale and optimize this model. So um, take a deep breath and approach health plan representatives with respect and humility and curiosity and find out what their priorities and pressures are and what's important to them. Use that same approach when you're talking to the oncologist who never refers their patients who you know are suffering because they don't do so. Find out why and you know, try to understand their needs. And you're still allowed to not meet those needs and you can still you can use I wish statements. I wish I could. I wish I could offer all of these services for $300 a month. It's just not possible. Um, you know, use your, use your, your training and, and your skills, but be mindful of and respectful of and curious about all four of those areas and bring that into your research or your teaching or your practice or the organizations that you're starting. And if you do that, everything has a much greater chance of being um, optimized, scaled and sustained. Wow, wow, Kathleen. Well, that's really impressive. Um, we'll have to make sure that we have that article available for people to look at um, because we know that everybody has their different articles. So we're so appreciative of you spending time and offering your your thoughts and perspectives. Um, I think this will really be helpful for our students to be thinking about all these different places. And so um, thank you very much, Lynn. Do you have anything else to add? No, and our podcast listeners as a whole, I think this was eye-opening and I've been in this field a long, long time and I learned a lot in this half an hour. So thank you so much. <laughs> well, thank you. It was my pleasure. You guys take care and good luck with your podcast and good luck with your PhD program. I can't wait to, to see it in action. Thank you so much. All right. Bye-bye.
I'd like to thank our guest today and Connie Dolan for the continuing journey in our podcast series titled Founders, Leaders, and Futurists in Palliative Care. I'd also like to thank you for listening to the Palliative Care Chat Podcast. This is Dr. Lynn McPherson, and this presentation is copyright 2021 University of Maryland. For more information on our completely online Master of Science, PhD, and Graduate Certificate Program in Palliative Care, or for permission requests regarding this podcast, please visit graduate.umaryland.edu forward slash palliative. Thank you.